Our second reading this morning is from uh, Acts chapter 12 and 13. Could you pull me back a little bit there? Um, I'll begin reading uh, at verse 19 of Acts 12. You'll find that there uh, in your bulletins. Hear the word of God. Then Peter went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing them with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there really are two ways to live, two different ways to live. There is the way of the world and there is the way of the Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about two ways. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me. And yes, the original text does say the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, or a life. Jesus was not a relativist. Jesus did not believe that all paths lead to God. There is one path that leads to God. There is one path that leads to eternal life. And the name of that path is Jesus. You might recall that in the earliest days of the church, before the followers were even called Christians, they were known as people of the way. Six times in the Acts of the Apostles, What we now call Christianity was simply called the way. There really are two different ways to live. The way of the world and the way of the Lord. 
New Year's is a time of resolution, and no doubt some of your resolutions are to walk in a way that is a little bit more in the way than it was last year. No doubt some of your your resolutions are to try to stay on the straight and narrow a little bit more this year than last year. Now we could dig into the psychology of why the one way is easy and wide and the other way is narrow and hard. I'm not going to. But you might want to spend a moment today thinking about that. Why is it that there are these two ways and why is one easy and why is one hard? Why does Jesus say that the way that leads to life is narrow and hard and the way that leads to destruction is in fact wide and easy? No matter what path you walk in, you only need the path to be as wide as you are. A narrow path is actually just as easy to walk on as a wide path. And as someone who has walked on both narrow and wide paths, I'm speaking spiritually now, as someone who has walked on both narrow and wide paths, I can tell you, and I'm guessing you know from your own experience, That walking in the narrow way, that walking in the path of the Lord, is in fact sweeter and richer and deeper and more fruitful and more productive and more satisfying. And yet, even knowing that, without constant vigilance, our feet very quickly stray back to the wide and easy paths. Why is that? I think it's not really about the way, it's not really about the path, it's more about us, the walker, the pilgrim. I really do believe that human nature has fallen. And what convinces me of this biblical truth is how the flesh is always warring against the spirit. Is how our feet, even when we know the sweetness of the way of Jesus, so easily strays into the wide way, into the ditch. I've experienced that in my own life. I've seen it in your lives, too. I've seen it in Christian people and people who are genuinely born again. People who have known the sweetness of walking with Jesus. I've seen them, in a moment, get off track. It's not about the track. It's about the walker. It's about us, we who are fallen. Our internal gyroscope is out of whack. We are, by nature, prone to make wrong decisions. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why we need Christian fellowship. No one was ever called to follow Christ and then told to remain by himself in a cave somewhere. If you've been called to follow Jesus, you've been called into the church. You've been called into an intentional community of Christian fellowship. Because when you're walking with a Christian brother or a Christian sister, you're less likely to fall into the ditch. It's like having two hands on the wheel while you're driving. One hand is enough to control the wheel. But two hands is always steadier. They they balance each other. And two Christians are steadier than one Christian alone. Which is why you should never be a loner Christian. Don't do it. You'll end up in the ditch. Come to church, of course. I'm hoping that 
on everyone's list of New Year's resolutions this year is to get to church more often. 2020 was a disaster for church attendance. I'm sure you understand that. Let's make 2021 the year of the great return to worship. Come to church. It's hugely important. You were made to worship God. It's built into your DNA. And if you're not worshiping God on a regular basis, then you're failing to actually be a complete human being. Regular worship. God commanded it on a weekly basis. Regular worship is part of what we were designed to do. So we come to church, we gather with other Christians, we fellowship together, we worship God together. It's huge, it's important. May we do that this year. May this be a year of record attendance for us. But beyond weekly worship, we also need to be in regular, intentional, scheduled, not haphazard fellowship with other Christians. And the way that we do that here in this congregation is we have small group Bible studies. If you're not in a small group Bible study, you need to do that this year. Because it's in our small group Bible studies that we really get to know other Christians. And you let other Christians get to know you. The main reason people avoid small group Bible studies is that they don't want other people... To really know them. It's easy to maintain the Christian facade on a Sunday morning. But when you start sitting around each other's living rooms. When you start gathering around bonfires in each other's backyards. Who you really are comes to light. Which can be scary. But it's exactly what we need. Because that's how we manage to stay in the narrow way. None of us is good enough to do that by ourselves. We need each other. We need to support one another. We need to guide and correct one another. We need to love one another while we're on this pilgrimage. That's how we're all going to make it to the end. There really are two ways to live. The way of the world and the way of the Lord. The year is 2021 A.D. A.D. is... Short for Anno Domini, which is, you know, Latin for the year of the Lord. And the Lord, of course, is Jesus. I love how even the way we number our calendar is built on Jesus. There are, of course, those who want to get rid of B.C. and A.D. They're replacing them with B.C.E. and uh, C.E., before the common era and common era. But I love B.C. and A.D. Because it is a kind of declaration that Jesus Christ is the center of history and the axis on which human history turns. This year is 2021 A.D. This is the year of the Lord. 2021. Yes, last year was also the year of the Lord. Even with all of its troubles and losses, it was also the year of the Lord 2020. Jesus is sovereign in all times, in good times and bad times. My prayer for us this year, 2021, is that this will be a year of the Lord for us. A year when we are walking and living and thriving and celebrating in the way of the Lord. 
And we'll do that by gathering weekly for worship. And we'll do that by gathering in small group Bible studies. We will be people of the way this year. One year closer to the return of Jesus, by the way. There are really two different ways to live. The way of the world and the way of the Lord. In our reading from the Acts of the Apostles this morning, we have captured for us uh, two little snapshots of the two different ways. First, we have a little story about the death of Herod. And, uh, it, you know, the death of a king, the death of a Jewish king, should seem like a big deal, but our text, Acts 12, 24, ends the account of the death of Herod simply by saying, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod died this horrible way, but the word of God increased and multiplied. It then goes on to talk about the church at Antioch and the preparation for the new evangelism campaign. It's as if the Bible were saying, yeah, 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 the Jewish king, he died. He got full of worms and he exploded and he died. And his death was public and it was spectacular and it was horrible. But let me tell you about what's really important. The word of God increased and multiplied. Kings come, kings go. What's really important is that the word of God increases and then it multiplies. And so first we have the little story about the death of Herod. It's a story about life in the way of the world, in the wide and the easy path, the the way that leads to destruction. And then second, we have a little story about the church in Antioch. Their story is about the way of the Lord. It's the narrow and the hard path. It's the way that leads to life. And this morning's sermon, which is um, going to be a brief look at these two different little ways. Then I want us to close and spend a little time thinking about what paths we will be taking this year. And then we'll share communion together. So our reading this morning mentions the death of Herod. Now this is not... The Herod who was ruling when Jesus was born, that was Herod the Great. The Herod we meet in Acts chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod Herod Agrippa was sent by his grandfather and he was sent to Rome to be raised in the imperial household there in Rome. Emperor Tiberius was uh, ruling in Rome at that time and he had a great affection uh, for Herod and and he had this boy tutored along with his own son the future emperor Claudius and while living in that royal household that household of the richest and most powerful family on earth Herod Agrippa acquired a taste of easy living uh, a taste for spending more money Than he had, and he had a lot of money. And it was a habit that he never broke until the day he died. In our reading from Acts chapter 12, we learn about a conflict that he's having with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This dispute was the result of Herod trying to extract more revenue from the Phoenician port cities. He needed more money to finance his wide and easy life. 
We had already seen in the time of King David a constructive relationship between the Jews and the Phoenicians who occupied the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. King David had a good relationship with these people. But King Herod Agrippa, who always needed more money to pay for his extravagant lifestyle, abused that long-term relationship. Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian, mentions um, Herod's spendthrift ways. He comments on how much tax money the king collected during his life. He comments on how much tax money <coughs> the king had collected during his life, 12 million drachma. And he comments on how much more he spent in his life maintaining this lavish lifestyle. He was king. <coughs> he had the power to tax people. But he actually died in debt. King Herod Agrippa died in the year 44 AD. And both the Christian writer of the Acts of the Apostles and the non-Christian historian Josephus agree that the death of Herod was a divine retribution. In our reading this morning, we heard Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, Herod, down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So that's a pretty dramatic story of the death of one of the kings of Israel. Now let me read for you a longer explanation that Josephus writes in his Antiquities. I'm going to quote a couple of paragraphs here. When Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city Caesarea. And there he exhibited spectacles in honor of Caesar. At this festival, a great number were gathered together of the principal persons of dignity of his province. On the second day of the spectacles, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, of a truly wonderful texture, and came into the theater early in the morning. There the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a wonderful manner, and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. Presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery, but he shortly afterward suffered severe pain in his belly, striking him with the most violent intensity. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I whom you call a God am commanded presently to depart this life. I who was by you called immortal am to be hurried away to death. 
And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life being in the 54th year of his age and the seventh year of his reign. Okay, so quite a story. He's got this kind of this magic silver cape and everyone is stunned by it. Herod Agrippa. Someone else is going to have to preach in the next service. Uh, brought low, struck down by God. And he's uh, brought down to the grave. Now he's struck down because he's allowed honor to be shown to him that belongs to God alone. Herod was a man of wide and easy ways. He financed his luxurious life with public money. None of that was good, but what brings him down in the end is that he gives in to the temptation of receiving the praise of the people. Inordinate praise. Praise that should have been reserved for God. Herod was never known for being a righteous man, but he crossed a line when he basked in the honor showered on him by fawning people while he wore this amazing silver cloak. God struck him dead. Keep in mind two things about Herod. First, Herod was an Israelite. He was a child of Abraham. He was a child of the covenant. He was a member of God's chosen people. He had a special relationship with God. He was not a pagan. He worshipped Yahweh. He went to the temple. So that's the first thing to remember. And when you remember that, also remember that God sometimes strikes down even a child of the covenant. If they cross a line. Now the second thing to remember about Herod is that he was in his position, a king over Palestine because God had put him there. During his trial, Jesus says to the pagan Roman ruler, Pilate, he says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you by God. Yeah, God even appoints the leaders of pagan countries. So Herod is a child of the covenant. He's an Israelite. He has been appointed by God to be a king over the Jews. He's a kind of a puppet king. He operates within the Roman Empire. But he's a king for sure. And then it all comes crashing down. Now kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Dynasties rise and dynasties fall. Herod's son will be the last one to rule over the Jews. Companies rise and companies fall. Institutions rise and institutions fall. And how often does that fall come fast on the heels of the kind of arrogance that Herod shows? Herod doesn't say, I'm God. He doesn't say, worship me. He doesn't say, sing my praises, chant my name. But Herod puts on a spectacle, he dons these clothes, he's willing to receive the praise of lesser people, weaker people, people that he, as the divinely appointed shepherd of the people, people that he should have been pointing to God. How often does the fall happen when the individual begins to enjoy the accolades of the position he holds, every president, every pastor is in a position of authority only because God has put them there. But some 
presidents and some pastors make the mistake of thinking that the praise that comes their way is meant for them. They fall into the temptation of thinking that they are in this position because somehow they are great. Every shepherd of the people, whether in civil society or in the church, every shepherd of the people rules in the name of God. And if they forget that it is God alone who is worthy of the honor and the praise, they will fall. If not today, then they'll fall tomorrow. They will fall. The greatest leaders are humble people. They don't brag. They don't seek the limelight. They don't even really want or need the position that they hold. Their sense of self-worth, their self-identity is not caught up with the authority that they wield. The only person that you want to hand authority to is someone who doesn't crave authority. Beware people who grasp after control and power. Trust only those who are constantly turning your gaze to God because God alone is the source of all power and authority. Even Herod is brought low by his overweening pride and he's brought low in a very painful and a public and a miserable way. He lived a life of luxury. He walked in paths that were wide and easy. He basked in the praise of the people that he should have been turning to God. And then he died like a dog. Thanks be to God. And the writer of Acts wraps up that discussion of Herod and his dramatic death by saying, and the word of God increased and multiplied. I love that verse. No matter what news you hear, you can always wrap it up by saying, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Because kings will rise and kings will pass away, but the word of God will be forever. If the news of the way of the world starts to get on your nerves, just repeat that verse, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Okay, so we talked a little bit about Herod, the king of the wide and the easy way. Let's talk briefly now about the apostles, leaders of the narrow and the hard way. Verse 25 tells us, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now the service that's mentioned here that Paul and Barnabas were doing was bringing money uh, that they had gathered from the Gentile churches to Jerusalem to help the poor in the Jerusalem church. And after they finished bringing this money and and, uh, handing out that donation, they went back to where they had come from, which was Antioch, up in Turkey. And they take with them from the Jerusalem church, John Mark. John Mark will be uh, later become the the author of the Gospel of Mark. He... uh, that was the first of the Gospels to be written. Uh, he was the companion of Peter during Peter's uh, missionary journeys. So the three of them go up to Antioch, and we learn that the church in Antioch um, is full of prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucian of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
Now what I want you to see about this little uh, catalog of church leadership is how international it is. Barnabas is a Jew from Cyprus, which is an island out there in the Mediterranean Sea. Saul, of course, is a Jew. He's from Tarsus. He's not from Palestine, though. He, he comes from what we now call Turkey. Simon, uh, Simeon, called Niger, is called Niger because he was black. He's probably African. Lucian was from Cyrene, which is also in Africa. And Menaean was a friend of the Jewish royal family. No doubt a Jew from a very uh, prominent uh, and wealthy and a worldly family. That was the leadership team in Antioch. International, multiracial, uh, from different mm, economic echelons. It's not in any way a dyed-in-the-wool, born-to-it kind of church. What we see are people that are drawn from very different places but are banded together in this new way, in this narrow way, in this way of Christ. And it is this church... This complicated, mixed, international, multiracial church at Antioch, which becomes the launching pad for the first Christian missionary journeys. People from every tribe and every tongue. That's what the church looks like, or that's what the church is supposed to look like. That's what a missionary sending neighborhood evangelizing church looks like. When a church is homogeneous, when everyone in the church looks the same, you know something's out of balance because a church that is homogeneous, a church where everyone looks the same, that's a church that's not out there in the highways and the byways calling people in. A club is a place where you go to be with people who are just like you. But a church is more complicated. Now, there are marketing gurus, church marketing gurus, who tell you that that kind of complexity is not good marketing strategy. But it is clear that the church of Jesus Christ has always flourished where it has been mixed and complicated and eager to gather in people from anywhere. So that's what the church there in Antioch is doing. And they're on the cusp of the first missionary journeys. So what was the church there uh the life in the church there at this point. This, this is 44 AD, by the way. So we're like, you know, we're a, a decade after uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Scripture tells us, this is in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Worshiping the Lord and fasting. Worshiping the Lord and fasting. Worshiping is the normal life of a church. In fact, it's the normal life of a full, healthy, sane human. If we're not regularly worshiping God, then we're out of whack. We're unhealthy because we were created by God to worship God. A human that does not worship God is like a bird that doesn't sing or like a bee that doesn't make honey. We were made to worship God. And when we invite people... To join us as we worship God, we're inviting them to become healthy, full humans. 
We're inviting them to become the kind of people that God created them to be. Before we begin to worship God, we're stunted. We're little runts of human beings. We're trapped and unable to flourish, but when we worship, we become who God wants us to be. And so the church at Antioch was worshiping, but they were also fasting. Now fasting is always connected with earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. When you really want to break through to God, sometimes you need to fast. When prayer alone isn't doing the trick, sometimes you need to fast. Fasting is taking a break from the ordinary good things that God gives us, things like food and drink and sex and Facebook and Netflix. It's taking a break from those ordinary good things so that we can focus more intently on the prayer. And we are praying so earnestly and so intently because we have a great desire. Sometimes we want things even more than food and drink and sex and entertainment, and we're praying for them. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but we're praying for those things that we want. And sometimes we need to deepen and sharpen our hunger for those better things, for the things of God, by taking a break from the things that are okay, the things that are good. And so we fast for a time. So the church at Antioch, they're worshiping and they're fasting. There's something that they want. There's something that they're hungry for. There's something more they want from God that God hasn't given them yet. What they're hungry for, as it turns out, is to see an explosion in the kingdom of God. They want to see the gospel spread. Okay, they've been converted. They were pagans. They've come to know Christ. And now they're eager for that message to go out. They want others who don't yet know Christ to be drawn into the fold. They're on the cusp of an evangelical explosion. They're about to launch the very first missionary expedition. Up to this time, okay, we're in the year 44 AD. Up to this time, the gospel had spread kind of organically, almost accidentally. Someone would leave town, they were a Christian, they'd bring the, the gospel with them. Maybe they were sent out by persecution, they'd move to another city and the gospel would come with them. But there had yet to be a deliberate, intentional going out to spread the gospel. There hadn't been any missionary campaigns organized yet to take Christ to the world. But Antioch was hungry for that. And so they're worshiping God and they're fasting and they're praying. They're hungry to bring more glory and honor to Christ and they're praying about it and they're fasting. And the culmination of that fasting and praying, I don't know how long it went on, but the culmination of that fasting and the praying was the ordination of Barnabas and Saul by the laying on of hands as the very first missionary evangelists. Okay, this is when the church really takes off. So as we step into this new year, what are we hungry for? What larger things of God do we want? We're blessed 
God has taken care of us. God has sustained us. But what deeper things do we want from God? What is it that we need to be fasting for? What do we need to be praying about? I don't know if you do New Year's resolutions. I do. I don't like to talk about them. I write them down. Me and I were talking about them the other day. We were comparing notes. I told her some of mine, not all of mine. Some of them we're going to cooperate on, okay? Because, you know, two are better than one. What things that you, are you looking for this year? I want you to be praying and fasting about those things. Not doing them in your own strength, but doing them in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would also encourage you to bring others into your circle who can pray with you about those things. There are things in your life, there are things in your community, there are things in this congregation that you want to see happen. God has placed that on your heart. You need to sharpen your appetite for that. Wet your appetite. Maybe you need to fast. More prayer. There are two ways that we can live this life. We can live the wide and easy life of the world. Or we can lead the hard and narrow life of the Lord. One leads to destruction. Filled with worms, you explode. And one leads to life. May we choose life. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we honor you. And we thank you for the testimony of these saints who have gone before us. Thank you for the hunger that you put into them to see the word of Christ spread to more and more people. Lord, we thank you that they weren't content to be comfortable where they were, but they fasted and they prayed and they sought your face and they ordained individuals and sent them out. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger for the things of the kingdom. I pray that we would take a break from the things of this world that are passing away anyway. Sharpen our appetite for things that matter, things that count, things that will last, things that will be forever. Help us lay up treasure in heaven. Bring honor and glory to yourself through us, through your church. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.